Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. So glad you're joining us today. today I'm joined by Dr. Chad McIntosh. We're going to be talking about why does God exist? A uh, very interesting and fun question here. If you don't know Chad, he's a philosopher, a farmer. Um, he does all kinds of great stuff. So Chad, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Farmer might be an honorific I don't deserve, but uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> I see your post and it's like, I know people that call themselves farmers and do a lot less than that. So I, I think it counts. So, um, but thank you so much for joining me today. Um, to start off, could you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do before we get into like the question of why does God exist? Sure. Well, I am PhD's uh, student, well, not student anymore, a PhD from Cornell University and have been living in Columbus with my wife and two beautiful daughters for the past, well, beautiful daughter number two just came uh, five months ago. Oh, but we, we, thanks. We, we moved to Columbus four years ago, and I was teaching at Mount Vernon Nazarene University, but since all the COVID stuff hit and everything moved online, I, I didn't really have much interest in doing that. So I've been Happily, a stay-at-home dad working on the house, working outside, and working on philosophy in my spare time. I love it. It's the good mm. life. That's awesome. And it's so cool about the Mount Vernon thing we were talking before because I played those basketball tournaments at the same exact time as you were teaching. So maybe yeah. I like looked at you across the hallway and had no idea who that guy was. So possible, yeah, that's possible. <laughs> yeah. So um, getting into the question of why does God exist, let's just go to like the genesis of the paper. Um, like, what's the backstory of this paper and all the work on this question? Well, the genesis of like the work, the the, the hard philosophical work is a little different than the genesis of the paper itself. The genesis of the paper is kind of funny is I wanted to submit to the, what was it? Postgraduate essay competition for religious studies. And, and, uh, cause there's a nice cash prize for that. And I remember I was traveling to Taiwan to visit relatives there. My wife's Taiwanese. And, uh, I remember sitting in the airport in Japan and I noticed like, Oh, the deadline for this paper submission, this competition is like in 10 minutes. And so I just I literally copied and pasted a chapter from my dissertation, slapped a conclusion and an introduction on it and submitted it. And it was one of the finalists for the competition. And, it, and it's going to be in the special issue for that competition. It didn't win, but uh, it was a runner up. So that's kind of the genesis of the paper itself. But the ideas there is that I was studying the Leibnizian cosmological argument as put forward by philosophers like Stephen Davis and, and William Lane Craig. And, and you know, the, the first premise of that argument is the principle of sufficient reason. Everything has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in some external cause. In short, everything has an explanation. No exceptions, no restrictions. So, um, but if that's true, and, well, the argument goes, the universe then must have an explanation. And if the universe's explanation can't be in the necessity of its own nature, it has to be into an, uh, in, in an external cause, which is God, whose explanation is in the necessity of his own nature. But that got me thinking, it's like, well, what does that mean exactly to have its explanation, God's explanation in the necessity of its own nature? That's not really clear what that means. And the defenders of that argument say nothing about this. Uh, so I understand what it means to be necessary. I understand what it means to have an explanation. But to 
slap those two together, I don't understand that really at all. So I wanted to dig deeper on this, and it turns out no one's talking about this. So I had to look into what uh, figures in the past, uh, philosophers in the past have said about this. That's one of the things I love about your work is it seems like you're just diving into all these topics that everyone like tends to stay away from, like um, like this or like looking at like why is God a Trinity or like um, what happens if there's aliens, like it's just like all these cool topics. Um, yeah. So we we love the PSR and like cosmological arguments for the existence of God. Um, so then the question is, can we use this to analyze the question of why God exists, um, or should we just abandon the PSR altogether when looking at um, the cosmological arguments and such? We, well, we shouldn't abandon it. Uh, so we can and we should apply the PSR to God. And historically, theists have done this. Theists who have endorsed the PSR have done this. And this may sound strange to contemporary philosophers, because if you read their writings, their arguments based on the PSR, they always appeal to more restricted or, or modest versions of the principle of sufficient reasons that make room for God to be an exception. So, for example, they'll say that everything contingent has an explanation or all contingent truths or facts have an explanation. Or they'll say um, anything that's possibly caused has an explanation and so on. Well, these versions uh, invariably then point to the necessity of, of there being a godlike being as a sufficient explanation. Uh, and while I think this approach is is dialectically effective because weaker and more modest principles are easier to defend and they're more easily acceptable. Um, I think, I, I think it's got deeper problems. Um, uh, I, as I put it in the paper, dressing modestly is only a virtue in public. It's the, it's the unrestricted principle of sufficient reason that drives naked philosophical inquiry. So mm -hmm. that that's the principle that I want to stick with and that theists historically have, have stuck with. So um, just ju just think of Leibniz's famous question, why is there something rather than nothing? The question isn't, why is there something contingent rather than nothing, right? The contrast is between something and nothing. So logically speaking, if we translate the question, it's, it's going to be something like for any X, if X is a thing, we can ask of X why it exists rather than not. And, and obviously this, this applies to God because God exists. So uh, that, that's why I want to stick with this broader principle rather than a more restricted version. And, um, and I've got three more reasons why I think this more modest approach that's common among philosophers today is not optimal. Um, so uh, did you have any questions before I launch into those? No, I think that's good. Yeah, feel free to go into your three reasons. Okay. okay, so first, necessity or necessary existence just as such is not buck-stopping as far as explanation goes. It does not stop explanation. We try to explain necessary things all the time. Numbers, other abstract objects, moral truths are all commonly supposed to have explanations. And the unrestricted version of the PSR everything has an explanation, is is why. We commonly just intuit that everything, without exception, has an explanation. Second, the arguments typically given for the more modest or restricted versions of the PSR, uh, that it's self-evident, that it's presupposed in all rational inquiry, 
that its denial entails radical skepticism. All these arguments are perfectly general, and they support the unrestricted version just as much as they do the restricted version. So it's like, why are we sticking with a more restricted version? And finally, the unrestricted version of the PSR is actually simpler than a restricted version. A restricted version of the principle of sufficient reason faces the question of why the domain is restricted to just contingent truths or whatever. Um, so in this way, restricted versions of the PSR actually face what's called the taxicab objection. Treating the need for explanation like a taxi that you can just hire and dismiss once you get to an arbitrarily chosen destination. But the UPSR, the unrestricted version of the PSR, faces no, subject, so, no such objection. So for these reasons, I think we shouldn't shy away from this unrestricted version of the PSR and that we should live up to its commitments, which includes thinking about why God exists. What's the mm -hmm. reason for God's existence? Yeah. So would you think then like someone um, who would say that maybe like when we get to like a necessary truth explanation just kind of ends, um, you think that someone like that would have faced like maybe like some of the similar problems is denying like any form of the PR PSR rather than like if you understand what I'm saying here um, with regard to just like adopting like a restricted PSR, then we get to the necessary fact and well, there's no explaining to that. That's just where it ends. Um, do you think you're going to run into some issues there um, if that's kind of like someone's view there? Only if there's some accompanying argument for why we have we can we we must identify a necessary fact as a brute fact but i don't see any argument for that i mean maybe some kind of necessary facts are brute facts but also i mean like like i mentioned before i mean everyone it's ubiquitous in the literature that some necessary things some necessary facts propositions have explanations so you need to give an for for a philosopher who just wants to stop explanation at necessity whether it's a fact or a proposition or a being or whatever they need to give an argument for that they need to give a reason for why we stop the the chain of explanations there and historically when philosophers have talked about chains of explanations even they have recognized that necessary things propositions into these facts can have explanations so we need to stop the chain of explanations in a being whose explanation uh, into being who's necessary, whose explanation is in itself. It can't, the ch chain of explanations can't just keep going back and back and back. So mm. I think whoever wants to just stop the chain of explanations at necessity needs to give an additional argument for that because their position is the minority position in the history of philosophy and, and today. Mm. So moving on here in your paper, you talk about how, like how different thinkers over time have explained the question of um, why God exists. So let's just go over some of their takes. Um, so who's who's the first person that you look at in the paper? The first person is Anselm. And, you know, back back then in the 11th century, you know, they talked a little bit differently. They expressed things a little bit differently back then. But Anselm expressed the principle of sufficient reason like this. He said, and I quote, everything that is exists either through something or through nothing but nothing exists through nothing for it is altogether inconceivable that anything should not exist by virtue of something whatever is then does not exist except through something now for anselm to exist through that phrase or exist by virtue of uh, by virtue of something is for it to have its explanation in something else it's it's to have its reason for being in something so to Anselm, everything has a reason for its being, 
um, where everything exists through something, as he puts it. But then he goes on to argue, on pain of regress, not everything can exist through something else. So there must be, quote, a certain nature through which whatever exists and which exists through itself and is the highest of all existing beings. Now, the question I'm interested in, uh, or our question, is how does he make sense of this, uh, of a being that exists through itself or has its reason for being in itself? And here's his answer. It's, it's uh, See if you can wrap your mind around this. Here it is. As to how it should be understood to exist through itself and to derive existence from itself, it seems best to conceive of this subject in the way in which one says that the light lights or is loosened through and from itself. For as the mutual relations of the light and to light and lucent, such are the relations of essence and to be and being, that is, existing or subsisting. So the supreme being and to be in the highest degree and being in the highest degree bear much the same relations as one to another as the light and to light and lucent. All right, now that's his analogy. Uh, he doesn't say anything else about this as far as exposition goes for what it means to exist through itself. I want to know what your take is immediately from 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 this analogy. What do you think, Zach? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I'm I'm trying to like track along here, and it's like um, it almost seems like he thinks that like we can find an explanation for like why God exists, like just within God's existence. Um, which I mean, I may be off base here, but that's what I'm kind of getting at. I'm kind of sounding like, and it's like. Well, it's a little bit like personal, like almost sounds like circular reasoning. But we also have like this thing where like we have like an ontological argument where it's, you know, like a, a perfect being would have like necessary existence. Um, so maybe that's a little bit of what I'm getting. Maybe I'm just completely off track here. Yeah, well, it's distinct from the ontological argument, which just arrives out of a necessarily existent being. Uh, this mm -hmm. one arrives out of being whose explanation is in itself. Um, mm -hmm. So I think what he's saying here is that it's the nature of light to be luminous when it's lit. So mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a way, you can kind of summarize this by saying that light is what it does when it's doing it. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so likewise, the supreme being is what it does when it's doing it, which is to be mm -hmm. supreme being-y when it's supreme beings, huh. which, is all, which is always. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, the difficulty, I, I think, if I've understood uh, Anselm correctly here, is that Anselm seems to be spinning ontology out of the yarn of grammar, it seems. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it's just it seems to me anyway, it's just an artifact of grammar that the word light can be used as both a noun and a verb. So it's a noun mm -hmm. when I say I light the cave uh, and it's a verb or sorry, the light in the cave is a noun and it's an it's a verb when I say I light the cave. So it's not it, it's, it's not as if the fact that it can be used as both light can be used as both a noun and a verb is a clue into the metaphysics of light as some sort of special dynamic substance whose being is what it does, you know, uh, that we can then apply to God. So I don't think there's much here for as interesting as this analogy is, I don't think there's much here to help us understand what it means for something to exist through itself. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. 
Um, but in the paper, you move on here from Anselm um, to the GOAT, Thomas Aquinas, according to some people at least. Um, and you said that, um, uh, as you said, we usually associate the PSR with people like, say, like Leibniz. Um, but also, does Aquinas accept the principle of sufficient reason? Yes. Uh, it's basically the same as worded in Anselm. Everything exists either through another as its cause or exists through itself as a necessary being. That Well, that's that's the one qualification qualification in life and i'm sorry in the aquinas is that he he adds that um god exists through himself as a necessary being so he notes mm -hmm. that because he notes that even necessary beings could exist through other necessary beings as their cause and this can't go on forever there must be something and, and here's a quote having of itself its own necessity and not receiving it from another so like anselm Aquinas thinks that the PSR gets us to a being who exists through itself, though he adds necessity into the mix. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So Aquinas has a similar PSR, um, but then he adds this necessity into the mix, as you say. Um, so how does he spell that out? What does that look like? Yeah. So we we can see this or we can begin to understand this by by reverse engineering, as it were, uh, the first three ways that he has for mm. demonstrating God's existence. Uh, the things that need explaining in the first three ways are things which are caused, things which undergo change or movement, and things which are contingent. Now, all these things are things whose essence is distinct from their existence. Uh, and, and, and as such, they're ontologically dependent things uh, whose existence is then explained by prior existence. Excuse me. So uh, the things that explain their existence are things like uh, matter and form or potentiality and actuality uh, and uh, and ultimately something that combines matter and form and, and something that actualizes potentiality and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, but again, on pain of regress, not everything can be explained by prior existence, right? So there must be an ultimate being that has no prior existence that explain it. And this can only being a be uh, this can only be a being whose essence is existence, right? That's that's mm. sort of like the 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 key metaf metaphysical bedrock entity in Th Thomas Aquinas's entire system is is a being uh, whose essence is its own unique act of existing. Ipsum esse subsistens, he says. Unlike everything else, which finds its explanation in something else. God is his own existence and so has his explanation in himself. That's how he cashes it out. Yeah, it's super interesting. And a lot of people would agree with Aquinas here. Um, so, Chad, in, in your opinion, what's the problem with this idea? Uh, well, I think that there are a lot of problems with it. Uh, uh, well, first, I'm not persuaded that the concept of a being whose essence is existence is even coherent. But let's leave that aside. That that gets in some into some technical waters. Um, but for pre present purposes, the main problem is that I don't even see how this proposal meets the explanatory demands of the PSR. It's widely agreed that identity, the relation of identity, is a reflexive relation. Uh, it, it bears the relation to itself. Uh, but it's also widely agreed that explanation or ex explanatory relations in general are not reflexive. So there's a, there's a problem here uh, as far as uh, saying how God's existence is identical to his essence somehow explains why God exists. 
Now, given given the Aristotelian concepts or, or categories that Aquinas adopts, it's clear how the existence of other things are explained uh, as matter form composites. Their existence is, is explained in part by their form and matter, uh, which is which Aquinas calls internal causes, and in part by whatever conjoins them, their external causes. But when it comes to a being whose essence is existence, none of those explanatory elements are present. We have an independently existing, absolutely simple being. Uh, but such a being can't have an explanation since it depends on nothing outside itself. And there isn't anything internal to it that can serve as its explanation. So there's just nowhere in this being, this absolutely independently existing simple being, you can find an explanation. It's just too thin of a concept for explanation to squeeze in there. So uh, I, I, I think it's a non-starter. Mm. So the next group of philosophers that you're going to look at in this paper is the rationalists, um, who are known for the PSR and their philosophy, like you're talking about Leibniz earlier. Um, so maybe they had more promising things to say about like what explains the existence of God. Um, so what are they saying? Right. Well, so I look at Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz. And Descartes is by far the toughest nut to crack. <laughs> uh, he He writes clearly enough, but... Uh, but trying to make sense of his claims is just so so hard and frustrating. So he's clear about his commitment to to the principle of sufficient reason and about and about how God isn't an exception to it. He writes, "The light of nature certainly tells us that nothing exists about which the question why it exists cannot be asked." And so this is this is the PSR, and, and, and in fact, that PSR is the first of his ten axioms of or common principles of metaphysics, where he explicitly says that the question of why God exists, quote, may be asked even concerning God. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when it is asked concerning God, Descartes says that God is self-originated, self-caused, self-derived. Now, those phrases sound crazy since obviously something that's self-caused or self-derived seems viciously circular, right? Nothing can be prior to itself. Because in order to cause oneself to exist, you have to exist before you exist. <laughs> but but, he, he, but he, he's quick to qualify that he has a unique kind of causation in mind, okay? It's something in between efficient causation, productive causation, and formal causation, which is a, sort of the, the idea or essence behind something. Okay, so he says it's like efficient cause, God's cause, in that... Um, it, it, it's it's the effective power and is genuinely explanatory. And it's like a formal cause because that explanation is in terms of God's essence. So there's this unique concept of causation at work here. Um, and he appeals to it. And, and, and I guess the short of it is that God exists because God's essence is such as to be the productive power underlying his own existence. Uh, but in the end, he kind of paradoxically again, he says that God's existence and essence are not distinguished. So throw that in there. I'm not sure sure how that that works, but okay. Um, this is as puzzling to us today, I think, as it was to Descartes' mm -hmm. own correspondence, uh, Catarus and Arnold. Um, when you read their replies to Descartes' meditations um, or, or principles. Uh, they hammered him hard on this. 
Probably more than anything. Uh, and, and you can detect Descartes' frustration uh, when, you, when you read his, his replies to the replies. At one point, he just refuses to talk about it anymore. He says, I've pursued this topic at greater length than the subject deserves. And then he just stops talking about it. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, as a reader trying to figure this out, I'm like, wait, no, your answer to why, why God exists is that, well, God has a special sort of causal explanation. And then you refuse to talk about that special sort of causation anymore. That's not a satisfactory answer, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and so his other trick is, is to say that, uh, well, the relevant causal concept, the answer here is self-evident to those who follow the natural light of reason. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah. excuse me, sir. Uh, you know, me here in my dark dungeon of my lowly thoughts, you know, so, uh, for, for not getting this, this concept here. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, here, here's the best I can make sense of it, of, of what Descartes says. It's that, uh, well, we've all probably seen that picture of of Escher, Escher's uh, lithograph of the two hands drawing themselves into existence. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, pull that up here? Yeah, why don't you pull that up? Okay, yeah. So, you, so it's like it's like Descartes is having us imagine God's existence is explained by his essence as a formal cause in the same way that the existence of the two hands in that picture is explained by their essence as a formal cause, which is to draw each other into existence. Um, but obviously, <laughs> that's that's absurd on multiple levels. I mean, the hands have to exist before they can draw each other. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's why the why the picture is paradoxical. You know, of course, Escher is known for all of his paradoxical pictures. Besides, uh, as I mentioned before, Descartes says that God's existence and essence are not distinct. They're not distinguished. So it's not even clear what's explaining and what's being explained here in, in, in his idea of, of how this works. Yeah. One of the things when you sent me this picture, like earlier this afternoon, I was like, is this like, before I read it, like when you said, I thought this was like your answer for a second. I was like, okay, well, why are they like these hands here in the first place? Um, so yeah, it's an interesting yeah. question. Yeah. Yeah, if I seem more animated about Descartes, it's because I spent a year studying <laughs> Descartes on this, and I want it back because my investment did not return. Uh, I mean, he like it, it, just read it, just read what Descartes says on this, and going back uh, between him and his correspondence, and it's so frustrating. Uh, so when I get to heaven, and if Descartes there, uh, I'm going to demand a year of my life back from him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I have enough time up there to do that, but we'll see how it goes. Um, so the question then becomes, looking at Spinoza, did Spinoza do any better than Descartes in answering why does God exist? Yes and no. Uh, yes, in that Spinoza lot is a lot easier to figure out than Descartes, but no, in that he really didn't offer anything new, unfortunately, um, uh, and despite his provocative language. Uh, in many ways... Spinoza was the easiest. Uh, he, well, he affirms the unrestricted principle of sufficient reason. In his words, everything which exists, exists either in itself or in something else. And that which cannot be conceived through anything else must be conceived through itself. Or again, he says, for everything, a cause or reason must be assigned either for its existence or for its non-existence. And now for this reason or cause must either be contained in the nature of the thing or mm. be external to it. So clear cut uh, commitment to the unrestricted PSR there. Uh, and, and, and perhaps more than anyone else, 
Spinoza did not shy away from using straightforward language, causal language in his account of, of God's explanation. He says that God, God is the cause of himself. God is, his famous phrase is causa sui or self-caused. Now, what does that mean? Sounds provocative. Mm -hmm. well, the very first sentence of his book, The Ethics, his most famous work, tells us, it says, quote, by that which is self-caused, I mean that whose essence involves existence or that whose nature can be conceived only as existing. So just as we saw in Descartes, Spinoza's uh, mm -hmm. initially intriguing and provocative language of God, of God being self-caused seems to just reduce to the old idea that God's existence is identical to his essence, which we've already found unsatisfactory. Mm. So the last philosopher you consider then is Leibniz, um, and maybe he more than anyone else is associated with the PSR and also inventing things like the death of every high school senior slash college freshman's um, uh, life called calculus. Um, <laughs> what, is he, what does he think about um, the question of why does God exist? Well, he, he, he formulates the principle he, he, in true form like a genius. He, he does have a unique wrinkle. Uh, but he formulates the PSR in several different ways throughout his corpus. Uh, and one of them is the, the one we've already encountered, which is just that everything that exists exists through something. He says, if something is through something else, then it has a reason of existing outside itself. That is, it has a cause. But if something is through itself, then its reason of existing is taken from its own nature or essence. And it's this latter reference, uh, uh, this latter reference, uh, something existing through its own essence is, is a reference to God for Leibniz. Now, now, now God's reason of existing is taken from his own essence. And, and the key to Leibniz's proposal is to be found in Leibniz's conception of essence. Um, now for, for Leibniz, and there are some similarities here between Leibniz and Descartes, uh, but, but Leibniz kind of pushes further where Descartes refused to go. Uh, now, Leibniz thought that all things exist because of their essence. Uh, essences for Leibniz are, are special things. They, they have a sort of built-in propensity to mm. exist, a propensity for existence. It's sometimes called the striving, the doctrine of striving possibles. Well, and that comes from this passage. He says, since something rather than nothing exists, there is a certain urge for existence or straining toward existence in possible things, or in possibility or essence itself. In a word, essence in and of itself strives for existence. Okay. Now, as he goes on to say, as Leibniz goes on to say, this striving for existence, it, it comes in degrees. And the strength of that degree of striving is proportionate to an essence's degree of perfection. So the more perfect, the stronger the striving for existence is. Uh, but, uh, now, now, perfection also comes in degrees, right? Uh, things can be more or less perfect. So a thing's degree of perfection is determined by how many other things limit that thing's being. So here, here's an analogy Leibniz gives. He says, just as an object in motion travels uniformly unless acted upon by external forces, a thing's degree of perfection, and, and hence its hold on reality, its grip on reality, 
is limited to the extent that the same and other things are in its way, so to speak, are in the way of its being. Okay, so now God's essence, being supremely perfect, is like an object in motion which cannot possibly be met with resistance by anything else. It's 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 the the God's essence, its propensity to exist, is maximal and unabated, uh, and so existence inexorably flows from it necessarily. So his answer is that God exists because his existence necessarily flows from his perfect essence. Um, so so that unique wrinkle in Leibniz, at least on one interpretation, is that that relation between essence and existence is not identity as it was in Aquinas. Mm. Uh, it, it's more like mutual modal entailment. Mm. Um, oh, here's an example. The number one entails there's a number two and vice versa. Uh, or, or, or better, uh, a classic example is that sets uh, entail the existence of their members and vice versa. Take, take the set with just the number one, for example. Um, sometimes it's called the uh, the singleton singleton set with just just the number one. If if the number one exists, then so does the set with just the number one. But the reverse is also true. If the set with just one exists, so does the number one. Now here's the, here's the, they modally entail each other. But here's the key point: it's the number one that explains why the set exists, not the other way around. Uh, the set doesn't explain why the number number one exists. So we have mutual modal entailment. But there's an there's an asymmetric explanatory relation here. And I think this is what Leibniz is getting at. So if we're supposed to understand the situation along these lines, uh, it's that God's essence is explanatorily prior to God's existence, even though they mutually entail each other's existence. Um, the problem now, if as long as we've understood the, the view correctly, is that we're still left with the question of what explains God's essence, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, Leibniz says that it has the maximal propensity to exist. Okay, but doesn't an essence already have to exist before it can have the propensity to exist? Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, so it's like, how can God's essence be an explanatory resource for God's existence without itself existing first? So, uh, so there's some circularity problems here too, um, and and we don't want to say that. God's essence is explained by a prior essence, which is explained by a prior essence, which is so on to infinity, because I mean, that's also not explanatorily sufficient. So uh, it's interesting. He's got some interesting things to say. He pushes further than D Descartes did, uh, but it's ultimately unsatisfactory. It's beginning to almost just sound like there's no like there's no satisfying answer to this problem. Like we're 35 minutes into this um, like video titled "Why Does God Exist?" and we still don't really have a satisfactory answer. Looking at like some of the greatest philosophical minds in history, really. Um, so th the question then becomes: Really, do we need a satisfying account for why God exists in your view, Chad? Well, I think we do, since since well, at least if you accept that unrestricted principle of sufficient reason, and if we're going to defend uh, a, a PSR-based cosmological argument for the existence of God, saying that everything has an explanation, uh, so the universe has an explanation, and that explanation is God, then we need to be prepared to answer the question of what is God's explanation, right? Mm -hmm. if, if we're going to offer a robust defense of this kind of cosmological argument, then we owe it to our interlocutors to have something substantive to say in response to that question. 
Uh, and unfortunately, I haven't seen anyone writing on this who, who have anything substantive to say. So I've had to plumb the depths of uh, these historical figures. Uh, well, plus, I, I think the question is interesting in its own right, and and can and can the question of why God exists and why we need an account there. And I think as we explore different possibilities here of what could be a satisfactory account of this, I think we're gonna. I think this is potential to to push into really deep and possibly unexplored metaphysical waters. So yeah, mm. I, th I think we do need an account. Mm. So what are your thoughts then on like the question of why does, why does God exist? Like if all these brilliant philosophers um, uh, can't come up with like an, a good answer, um, what makes you think you can, Chad? What do you got going for you that uh, all these other guys don't? I'm glad you Besides for the good looks. Besides for the good looks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we shouldn't try to answer the question in a vacuum. Um, I don't want to dismiss the philosophers we looked at today. I mean, I, I, I tried to, you know, uh, read them carefully and, and to give them the the credit and diligence in interpreting them fairly and charitably as as I could. Um, I think we we can learn. That said, I think we can learn important lessons from what they have said, which can help us develop our own answer to the question. And one of those lessons is that we need to put the doctrine of divine simplicity in the rearview mirror. It makes the question impossible to answer. Uh, think of it this way. If the PSR is true, then God has an explanation. If the doctrine of divine simplicity is true, God can't have an explanation. So either the PSR is true or divine simplicity is true. You can't have both. I'm throwing in with the PSR. And, uh, and I think once we open ourselves up to a much richer metaphysical concept of God than what divine simplicity allows— I think we'll have more resources to answer the question. So that's one lesson I think we've, we can learn from these historical figures we looked at. Um, another lesson is this, uh, and that's the possibility of mutual explanation factoring into a satisfactory account. We see hints of this in Anselm. Uh, so Anselm appealed to the mutual relations. He even called them the mutual relations between light to light and, and being lit. Uh, Leibniz uh, appealed to mutual relation between between essence and existence that isn't identity, so and so on. So I think I think that's a promising way to go, and I explore this in much more detail, much more detail elsewhere, uh, and including the previous time you had me on. So uh, we're mm. we're kind of going in reverse order in that uh, <laughs> all all of this material is kind of leading up to the more detailed answer I gave you in the in the last episode. Um, uh, where I try to give a good answer, uh, maybe we'll leave it as a teaser. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's a good answer, but at least uh, at least it's an answer, and it's an answer that I think is very intriguing, and uh, and ripe for further exploration. Hmm. I think we can leave it as a teaser then. Um, I guess I think it's a good way to kind of start to wrap things up here. Um, I it was about on. I forget what the video is titled, but if you look up like Chad and here in apologetics, I'm sure you can find it. Um, talking about like your paper on like God of the groups and such. Um, we'll do like a couple questions if that works for you, Chad. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, not really a question here, but Dean says I can't keep up with Chad's intellect. I'm either not smart enough or too shocked by Tottenham's defeat. Um, definitely Tottenham's defeat. Who did they lose? They lost to someone bad today. Do you know anything about English football, Chad? Sorry, I don't. I didn't even know that was a reference to that. <laughs> yeah, they're an English club that, you know, they're okay. Um, uh, I'm trying to see 
if there's questions relevant to what we're talking about here. Um, that one gamer says, this may be off topic, but how can someone get rid of the hyper skepticism on this? Like um, where you ask yourself, what if you're wrong? Because do I get to that point of like severe anxiety? So maybe it's kind of getting to like, um, we're looking at like these different questions about like, why does God exist? And it looks like there's no satisfactory answer. Um, so maybe we should just throw up, throw not throw up, but just throw away this whole idea of God existing. Um, so like, what are your thoughts here? Um, I think that's what he's getting at here, Chad. Well, you can, you can be content with just knowing that there is an answer without knowing what the answer is. I've tried to give an answer. I don't, I'm not confident that my answer is right, but I'm confident that there is an answer because I'm confident that the principle of sufficient reason is true. So you don't have to have the answer to know that there is an answer. I guess that's, that's one thing. Uh, and as far as anxiety goes, I mean, if this is causing you anxiety, just don't, this, this isn't something you need to think about. You know, this is, this is something that, uh, nerds think about. This is something that, you know, people, people, you know, love to like think about the logical intricacies and, you know, read Descartes and Leibniz and all that, you know, this is, this is for them. But if, if this is causing you anxiety, don't read it. Don't, and don't, don't think about it. I mean, that's not anti-intellectual. That's, that's putting your spiritual and uh, own health and well-being before this kind of material. And if 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 you are prone to anxiety about this stuff, at least if you're a Christian, I want to recommend. There's a book I can't recommend recommend enough. It's called. Well, there are two books. One is called um, "Good News for Anxious Christians" by Philip Carey, and he goes through a bunch of common theological beliefs that cause undue anxiety in the life of a Christian, especially Christians may be prone to more intellectualizing their faith. The second book is J.P. Moreland's re more recent book, uh, Finding Quiet. So check out those books if, if you're prone to anxiety. Uh, and uh, like I said, there's no reason you need to be thinking about this stuff if, if it gives you stress. Mm. Um, there's a question here from Landy Gaming, which says, um, do you ever consider any evidence about God? Do you consider any evidence about God to ever come to a foregone conclusion that God exists or just the most probable um, conclusion? So maybe it's like like when you're looking at like the reasons to believe in God and such, is it like the 100% certainty or is it like, well, this is just the best explanation for now um, or maybe something in between? Okay, so there, there's two different ways you could take this. Mm -hmm. The evidence for God lead to the conclusion that it's God's existence is certain. Now that's just going to depend on how you evaluate the evidence. Do you do you mm -hmm. think it's going to push all the way up to like 0.9 in probability terms, 0.99, or do you think it's more modest? Uh, now that th the question of how you assess how good the evidence is, that's that's different from your own subjective impression of, of God's existence in your life. That's totally different. And you could be subjectively certain that God exists, but have no confidence whatsoever in the evidence of God's existence. You could think every argument for God's existence is crap, but still be subjectively certain that God exists. Uh, but just as far as my own assessment of the evidence itself, not my subjective impression of God's existence. Yeah. I think, I think the evidence of God's existence, uh, pushes toward near certainty. And if you, if you want, if you want a, uh, kind of a, an exhaustive look 
at our various arguments for God's existence, check out the interview I did with Cameron Tuzi on capturing Christianity, where we we outline and and briefly summarize about 150 different arguments for God's existence, and we give the resources thereafter so you can look them up on your own time. To, it's just sort of a if you're into that kind of stuff, you might want to follow up on the arguments that pique your interest. So that mm. was one thing, yeah. Um, trying to see these more questions. Uh, we do have another question here from Dean, which says, um, "What are the type of arguments that Chad prefer most? Like um, beauty, miracles, moral? Um, what's your favorite in the gauntlet of theistic arguments?" I I go back and forth on this, uh, and I I guess I gotta say I like the argument from so many arguments. You know, <laughs> uh, it, it, well, you know, one day I'm thinking about the cosmologic argument, and I think like, yeah, maybe maybe this objection to that argument is decent kind of makes me agnostic about the success of that argument oh but then there's like the historical arguments and then there's the uh design arguments then there's moral arguments then there's other other metaphysical arguments then there's axiological arguments then there's you know blah, blah, blah. so i mean it just seems it seems to me that uh when i doubt one argument uh i just fall back on another and when i doubt that one i just fall back on another so there are just so many and uh, so i would i would i would plop in for something like the argument from so many arguments <laughs> um that's fair and there are so many arguments like it's just so hard it's just like which child was your favorite um but i do have one more very important question for you um and it's for me um knowing that you are from ohio uh i was talking with uh, dr jeffrey kapersky uh, on monday and um, he's from ohio too and uh, i had to ask him the same question because he answered it poorly um uh, so i figured i had to ask it you to you too um so no pressure chad chad do, are you an ohio state fan Dude, I can't say I am. I, <laughs> I, I've, n I've not really followed sports my whole life. The only sport that I kind of marginally follow is UFC. I was a wrestler in high school. Well, I, I actually played football and wrestled in high school, more wrestled. So I did kind of follow collegiate wrestling. But yeah, I mean, if my team is playing, if a team, a local team, OSU or, or I'm from Cincinnati, so if it's the Bengals or the Reds, I'll, I'll root for them. But it's fair weather kind of fan but uh, I, i'm sure that's a bad uh, that's a bad answer isn't it no that's actually the perfect answer so i'm so glad to hear that because <laughs> i'm from state college and like we're uh -huh. a state fan so it's like oh, ohio state they're the worst people ever and da -da 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 -da. Mm -hmm. so I, I had to bring it up because dr kapersky was a big ohio state fan uh -huh. um so that caused well, some conflict but, well you know. here's my conflict is i went to undergrad in michigan right uh mm -hmm. where michigan state is is like you know next to the god up there yeah. <laughs> and and i'm from ohio right which is where osu is next to god so i have these dual loyalties now between michigan and, and osu but i always pull for osu <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I, mean, I have family uh who who went to and many friends who went to osu so yeah I mean, I'll forgive you because you're a Christian, but that's about it. Um, so, uh, Chad, thank you so much for joining today. It's been so much fun. Um, do you have any kind of like last thoughts, things you get to say before we uh, wrap things up here? Uh, well, I was talking with my wife last night about about this. She said, oh, what's the interview about? And I said, well, it's about the paper, Why Does God Exist? And, and it just struck me as how weird it is that there are YouTube channels that would want to talk about something so <laughs> like you know, yeah and we talked about like 30 years ago before the advent of social media and all this stuff 
these papers would just sit unread, stillborn, unrecognized, dusty on shelves in academic libraries. Uh, but it, so it's very encouraging just to have to, to, for you to have me on and talk about this and to, to, to have some indication that the, all the hard work that philosophers put into their writing uh, doesn't, ju doesn't just get read by one or two people who subscribe to the journal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and that's why I love these conversations is because I feel like, you know, like not many people are probably opening like the journal of religious studies or philosophical Christie or something like that. Um, that aren't like professional philosophers. Like when we can bring these like ideas out into like YouTube and like things like that, I think it makes a big difference in helping people see that there's a very rich tradition in all of these big questions. Um, yeah. so it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I appreciate you having me on for that reason. Thanks a lot, Zach. Yeah, it's been so much fun, Chad. I always appreciate you coming on. I'd encourage everyone. Um, I guess we have an on the way out question. There are a, a few things, um, but what can books can people read um, for a layman with a nine to five to educate themselves in philosophy? So I think that may be a good on the way out question here uh, for you, Chad. I really like Tom Morris's book, Making Sense of It All. That's a great intro to philosophy with an eye toward sort of the more important questions. You know, you have introduction to philosophies that go through the main questions in metaphysics that have occupied like really kind of esoteric questions. And then you have the main views in ethics that go through like consequentialist, virtue ethics, deontology, all this stuff. But I think if you want a good introduction to philosophy, that is a meaningful introduction that talks about questions that matter to your life and as you think about God and philosophy and life and, and how it all hangs together, check out Tom Morris's book, Making Sense of It All. And he's also got a book called Philosophy for Dummies. Forget about the silly title. It's actually a good book. I like it. Yeah, definitely. Well, Chad, thank you so much for joining me. It's been so much fun to have you on again. Um, I encourage everyone if you talk about maybe like um, go further into why does God exist? We have another interview where we talked about how philosophy may show um, that God might be a trinity. Um, so you can check that out on the Hearing Project YouTube channel. And if you're new here, as always, I encourage you to subscribe, um, leave a like on your way out, leave a review. I always appreciate it or a comment. And then if you enjoy the show, you can support us on patreon.com slash Hearing Projects for as little as a dollar a month. Your support means a lot. And we're about like 82 or 83% of the way to our funding goal. So that's always appreciated. Um, but Chad, thank you so much one last time. It's It's been a lot of fun. Thanks a lot for having me, Zach. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, and thank you. Thank you, Susan, the computer theist, Caleb, everyone else who tuned in. Have a good one and God bless.